We are starting a new series this morning that will take us through Easter, as well as through the rest of the book of Galatians. And we've called this series of messages the Freedom Primer. Um, a primer is effectively a curriculum for children. And if you remember before our last series, the last time we were in Galatians, um, we talked about the fact that God has brought us into his family. He's made us his children. He's adopted us. And therefore, we are being grown, raised, discipled in the house of God. And so we called that series Homeschooled, and we focused on the structure, if you will, of how we fit into the household of God. Now, with the Freedom Primer, we're going to focus on the curriculum. What does it look like to live as a child of God? And the title, the Freedom Primer, uh, primer is uh, an emphasis that Paul sets here in Galatians. And so we'll read the entire text we have for this morning in just a minute. But just to lay out the entire series, I want you to look at chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then move down to 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do you see how our freedom is emphasized in both of those places? In the first half, and this is where we'll start today, he says, because Jesus has set you free, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then he's going to say in verse 13, and this is where we'll pick up next week, Jesus has set you free. Don't use that freedom for selfish means. Okay. And so the question that we're going to answer over the next six weeks is, what is the freedom God has given us in Christ for? How does it operate? How do we grow? What are we called to? Jesus has promised us righteousness and peace and love, how does that work out in the Christian life? So, where Paul begins and what we're going to look at this morning is, if you will, a summary and application of the entire letter of Galatians so far. This is the punchline. This is the climax of Paul's letter. This is the whole reason that he's writing. Now, by nature, as we've gone through the letter together, I've constantly referred to the circumstances of the Church of Galatia, that there were um, Jews who had come among this Gentile church and said, Jesus is great, but you also must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. However, if you read through the book, there's very few references to that up to this point. This is where he pulls back the veil and says, this is why I'm talking about what I'm talking about. This is where my concern is. This is where the misstep or the danger is. And so as we look at this text this morning, um, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, I want you to notice here that Paul presents a juxtaposition, an either-or. He presents two alternatives that can't be assembled or connected, two roads that diverge in a yellow wood, and we cannot walk them both. That's the way that Paul presents this this morning. Read along with me, starting here in Galatians 5, verse 1 again. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again 
to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. God, we recognize the gift that you have given us in Jesus Christ. That gift is forgiveness of all of our sins. That gift is the presence and empowering of your spirit to live a life that honors you. That gift is the promise that he who began this good work in us will be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. That gift is that one day we will be where you are and you will wipe away every tear and all sin will be put behind and we will live as children of the light in the light with you in your presence forevermore. And with that, Lord, has come freedom. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to recognize and rightly value our freedom, that we would hold on to it, that we would live from it, that we would harness it to follow you to the fullest extent. We pray that you'd protect us against the things that Paul warns us about here, Lord, that we would not be distracted or divided from your plan of salvation, but that we would follow it with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and our strength for all of our days, that we would walk in freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is some of the strongest language Paul uses anywhere. His concern for the Galatians is real and serious, and it's especially serious because they don't seem to see the danger. They see this presentation that these new teachers among them have made as something that they can add on to, uh, a, a superlative, an additional, a fringe benefit, another layer. In fact, they believe that if they follow these teachers, if the males of their church receive circumcision, and if they enter into all the rituals and laws of the old covenant as given by Moses, that that will make them more Christian. And Paul not only disagrees with that, but he suggests that they cannot go that route and remain Christians. His language here is very strong. In fact, if you were paying attention as we started to read in verse 7, his rhythm there is rapid fire. He goes from one thing to another. He mixes his metaphors. Look at verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He talks about 
you know, the race course. Uh, he talks about the the military. He talks about obedience. He talks about persuasion. He talks about the kitchen with leaven, leavening a whole lump. He's all over the place as he tries to make his point from basically all angles. His concern here is uh, extreme. Here he presents in verse 1 that Jesus has set us free, and he presents the danger of returning again to a yoke of slavery. Now, if you've uh, been studying with us in the book of Galatians, that is basically the conclusion of his book so far. And we're not going to review everything that we've covered in Galatians. If you weren't with us, I would encourage you even this afternoon to read chapters 1 through 4 again. But basically what Paul presents is that we as Christians become part of the family of God in the same way that Abraham did, through faith. That we as Christians have been given the Spirit which was the anticipation and expectation that was given to Paul, uh, excuse me, given to Abraham so long ago that the law that God gave Israel was temporary and was fulfilled by Christ and that, uh, that to go back to it would be the equivalent of the Gentiles going back to being under the, uh, the powers of this world. His final argument is in the language that he uses here, that we are free. And specifically, that's the freedom of adult sons, full inheritors who now manage their own wealth and are no longer under a steward. Okay, And so he says uh, that we should stand firm in our freedom. And as we've talked about over and over again, the danger for us is that we can feel like the danger for the Galatians is distant and irrelevant. I know that none of you probably have ever considered becoming circumcised as Christians, as a mark of obedience, as a manifestation of being the people of God. I know that you have probably not considered taking on the kosher laws and changing your diet to follow Jesus. I know that you haven't sacrificed lambs at the temple or entered into the you know, festivals of the Jewish year as a manifestation of your worship of the living God. But the danger that we would forsake what God has done in Jesus Christ for another path is always present. For the Galatians, it was the Judaizers, those who came among them and said, Jesus is good, but you also need circumcision and the law. For the church in Corinth, it was the super apostles who said, you need to experience the full of what God has in the spirit. You need to be fully functioning in the gifts and in the powers. You need a greater experience of God. For the Colossians and those who John wrote to in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it was the Gnostics who said, yes, you know Christ, but there is a deeper knowledge, a secret knowledge, only for the elite and for the initiative. Let us tell you the truth about who God really is. And in each place, there was a present danger. In fact, it is amazing if you read the New Testament from Jesus through Paul and Peter and John and James, how often they warn the church about false teaching and false, <coughs> excuse me, false prophets. There is a danger for us that we would forsake 
the good news by which we are saved. And again, I want you to notice in the first few verses here that Paul presents circumcision and keeping the law and being saved by Jesus as alternatives. Listen to the language he uses in verse 2. He says, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, if you've become a Christian, if you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you would generally put what Jesus has done for you in the pro category, as opposed to the con category, right? As a great advantage, okay? The idea is that God desired to save you from your sins to the degree that he became a man and willingly bore them on your behalf and granted you both forgiveness and adoption into his family and the presence of his spirit, we would generally say those are advantages. There are advantages to being a Christian. It's not just, you know, the advantages of growing up in a good home or the advantages of having community in the church. It is the advantage of restoration in relationship with the God who created us, who loves us, and who wants what's best for us. But Paul says, if you accept circumcision, you deny all those advantages. But he goes on and he says, stronger than that, he says in verse 4, if you do this, you are severed from Christ. Cut off. Separated from. You see, Either Jesus' crucifixion, his death on your behalf, and the empowerment that comes with his resurrection, either that is sufficient for salvation, or it isn't. And to say, I also need, is to deny the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. To say, Jesus is a start, but we need circumcision, or we need the law, or we need the rituals, or we need another sacrifice, is to deny the sufficiency of Christ. Either Jesus is your whole Savior, or he's not your Savior at all. Look at how he puts it next. He says, verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. There's the distinction. There's the difference. Either you are justified by your keeping of the law of Moses, or you are justified by the death of Christ. And therefore, for you to take the law upon yourself and say, I will do this, I will accomplish this, I will earn God's favor, is here, he says, to fall away from grace. And actually, that's a helpful phrase. It helps us to understand what Paul is saying here, because he uses the word grace. The word grace is sometimes translated in the New Testament as a noun, as the word gift. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, when it talks about the fact that God has given us spiritual gifts, it's the same word that we find here, okay? What makes a gift a gift is that it is given by a giver, not earned by the recipient, okay? Paul says in Romans chapter uh, 3, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Do you see the contrast there? The paycheck for your life is death because of your sins, but God has freely given us eternal life. What Paul says here is to choose to put yourself under the law, to choose to earn your way to salvation, is by nature to reject the gift. It says effectively, I can do this without your help. 
It says, no thanks, I'll take it from here. It says, I don't need your gift, I can earn it myself. Okay, And I want you to remember again that this is not how the Galatians see this. They have been so convinced by these Judaizers that this will increase and deepen their relationship with Jesus. And Paul says, no, it will end it. It will sever you from Christ. You will fall away from grace. Okay, so the stakes here are high. And like I said, we should trust that when the New Testament warns the churches across the Roman Empire in the first century, that it also desires to warn us here in America in the 21st century. We should recognize that there is always a danger of walking away from Christ. And oddly here, the danger is presented in the desire we have to grow. In the desire we have to do a better job of following God, to know him better, to please him more. And so the question becomes then, what is a life that pleases God looks like? What does it look like to grow in Christ? And the first thing we should recognize here is it doesn't look like circumcision. In fact, it doesn't look like a commitment to keep the Old Testament law. It doesn't look any more like Judaism. But to stop there isn't to answer the question. And if we do so, uh, which we are sometimes tempted to do and say, look, we are saved by Jesus Christ. That is the end of the story. We, we leave too large of a gap. And again, Paul's concern, as we saw in verse 13, is not just Stand firm in your freedom, but also grow in your freedom, develop in your freedom. And so I want you to notice some of the other language that he uses here. Look at what he says in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Okay, I want you to notice three key words there, ones that you'll see across your New Testament. Okay, The first one is Spirit. The second one is faith, and the third one is righteousness. Okay. Now, I want to point out something about this verse so that we rightly understand it. You may have forgotten, but as we walked through Galatians 4, we paid attention to the pronouns. Sometimes Paul would talk about we in reference to him as a Jew. Remember here that Paul is writing this as a circumcised child of Abraham, a Jew. Okay. Other times he would use the third person pronoun, plural, you, you all, you Gentiles. And he maintains that category distinction, but notice how significant that is here in verse 5. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul says, I am a Jew, I am circumcised, I am not yet complete. I am not yet righteous. I am still a sinner in need of saving. And notice he puts that righteousness in the future tense. Now, if you read your New Testament, it is totally appropriate to say that those who believe in Jesus Christ have been justified, declared righteous, that God looks at you and sees you as saved and no longer as sinner. But obviously, as we all know from our own experience, sin still plays a significant part in our life. Sin is still an issue that we struggle with and fight with, and much of the New Testament is devoted to helping us overcome 
conquer our sin, resist the devil, etc. Okay? But notice here, he puts the finishing of our salvation, the final proclamation that we have been made righteous and are completely righteous in the future. A significant part of the Christian life is hope. And as Paul argues in another place, what is seen and experienced right now doesn't require hope because what is doesn't need to be hoped for. Okay, and so he says here that we are waiting for God to finish what he started. And the truth is, one of the things that draws us away to false teachings, one of the things that stirs us to divide from Christ as we look to supplement what he's done in salvation, is that significant awareness that we are a work in progress. The discomfort we feel between God declaring us as righteous and us knowing who we are. Between God saying, I am your child in relationship with me, and us saying, I don't really experience that the way that I think that I should. And so we go looking for the true Christianity. We go looking for the real experience of God. We go looking for the inner circle of salvation. And the problem is, whenever we do that, we will find guides. We will find teachers who say, you're absolutely right. There's something wrong with you. Let me show you what it is. And inevitably, what they will promise you is heaven on earth. They will say, you can have all of this now. And so maybe what they'll say is, you can live a sinless and perfect life right now. And I'll teach you how to do it. Every day, you can live a life without sin right here. But what does Paul say? We ourselves eagerly wait in hope of righteousness. Maybe they'll come to you and say, you can have the full experience of the truth of God and no longer be deceived, but know exactly who God is and what he wants and speak for him perfectly and totally. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 13, in a passage very similar to this one that talks about faith and hope and love, that right now we see in a mirror dimly. That our perception now is limited and even skewed, bent. Whatever it is that they offer you, oftentimes it is what theologians like to call an over-realized eschatology. And I wouldn't teach you such a a wordy phrase if I didn't think it had value. But here's what they mean. Jesus promises the coming of his kingdom. And we call that the end of things, the end times. That's where eschatology comes from. An over-realized eschatology leaves nothing more in the future for Jesus to do and says you can have it now. Okay. It brings what Jesus does too much into the future. Now in the same way, we can do the opposite. We can say, there's nothing for me in the Christian life right now but to wait for what Jesus will one day do. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, that's not true either. We also have to watch out for an under-realized eschatology. I've always appreciated how Francis Schaeffer, a theologian, put it. He says, because Christ has come, we should expect significant healing in our life. Healing of sin, healing of relationships, healing of the structures of our world. But he says, because Jesus hasn't returned, we shouldn't expect perfect healing. 
Okay, Right there, he recognizes the balance that Paul presents here, but we need to watch out for those who tell you, you can have it all right now if you just follow these three easy steps. If you just send me, you know, six monthly installments of $999.95. If you just keep my rules and regulations or follow me, we should always watch out for this. And it's pretty easy to spot. To follow Jesus, to grow in Jesus, to develop in Jesus, to know him more, always requires that the focus be on Jesus. Circumcision or the cross of Christ? That's the alternative here. Does it lead you to reflect on Jesus and what he's done and experience more of what he's done? Or does it call you to go and do and to accomplish and these types of things? Notice what he says in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now this verse is so significant. Sometimes we as Protestant Christians, those who follow in the footsteps of Martin Luther and John Calvin, those who took a stand against the Catholic Church and said, no, we are saved by faith and not by works, is that we can juxtapose these two things too much and we can create what um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, called cheap grace. That just takes salvation as if it was a get-out-of-jail-free card and doesn't live any differently, doesn't truly love God any more deeply, just goes about our lives with some sort of fire insurance. But I want you to notice here the contrast that Paul makes in verse 6 is not between the works of the law and faith alone, but the contrast between the works of the law and faith working through love. Okay. He contrasts the works of the law and faith working through love. And so there is a working that happens in the Christian life. But it is also unique, okay? As we already saw, it's a work related to the Spirit. We in the Spirit, by faith, eagerly wait. The difference between the Old Covenant that was given through Moses and the New Covenant announced by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the other prophets, the one that Jesus pointed to on the Last Supper when he said, this blood is my New Covenant, is the provision of God's Spirit. Okay? A change from the inside that works its way out, instead of a change from the outside that can't fix what's inside. Right? Laws can change your behavior. They can restrict you from doing bad things. Okay? They can embolden you to do good things, but it leaves your heart unchanged. Your desires are still bent on bad things. It's just there's a cost to doing bad things that you're unwilling to pay. But the New Covenant offers a change in our hearts that didn't write the law on tablets of stone, but on our hearts itself, that empowers us by the Spirit, as we'll see in the following chapters, to live in a different way. Okay, So salvation in Jesus Christ is not, you no longer need to obey. It's, you are now free to obey, because I will enable you to walk in obedience. Okay, And so we see the Spirit here, and we see faith working through love. 
And I want you to notice that those are the things, the themes that flow through the rest of Galatians. Let's look at how Paul goes on from this point to talk about the Spirit, right? Through the Spirit, Paul says here in chapter 5. But notice what he says in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Remember how we were talking about alternatives? Here's another one, but it's more powerful than an alternative. He doesn't just say, walk by the Spirit and no longer walk by the flesh. He doesn't say there's two words. He says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay? That's not just saying two roads and leaving the choice up to you. God empowers us. He changes our desires. He changes us by his spirit so that we can walk the right road. Look at, he brings up the spirit again in chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. Okay, let me put it a different way. If you were born again in Jesus Christ, live out that new nature. If you've been given a new life in the spirit, live like it. Okay. And so again, we see the spirit is emphasized. And then one more here in chapter six, look at verse eight. He says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Again, two alternatives. He says, you are now free to sow because of the Spirit and reap eternal life. To do things in your life that have eternally fruitful significance. Okay, and so the Spirit is central and we'll see that that is a primary emphasis that Paul wants to make from this point out. And the danger is circumcision and the law is not enough. It's not sufficient. Where the uh, Judaizers are misleading the Galatians is saying, all you need is circumcision in the law and you can live a righteous life. And Paul says, what? Have you been paying attention? As he asks earlier in Galatians, if the law was sufficient for righteousness, then why did Jesus come and die? Right? The giving of the Spirit is a new thing that God has made available to us. Okay? And so, if you're not growing in the empowerment of the Spirit, and I want to be clear here, I'm not talking about growing in the experience of the Spirit. I'm not talking about speaking in tongues or utilizing your gifts. Those things are good and valuable and part of this. But as you can find out if you read 1 Corinthians, you can grow in all those things and not grow in Christ. But to grow in Christ will be to grow in the empowerment of the Spirit, in dependency upon God to walk in the life that he's called us to. And then notice again the other two key words again. Back in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, faith working through love. I want to show you that Paul is going to focus on this in the weeks to come too. For example, um, look with me at, um, at uh, verse 18 of chapter 5. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then notice, as it says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Okay. So, faith, working through love, 
which is the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, and then look at one last place. Um, actually, I think that's the one I wanted. That's fine. We'll, we'll stop there. Um, but let me lay out how this works. Okay, the first thing I said is, if you're not growing in the experience of the Spirit and His empowerment to do righteousness, you're not growing as a Christian. Second, if you're not growing in faith, you're not growing as a Christian. It's not just working, and it's not just love. It's faith working through love. And remember what that word means. It's not just a positive belief that everything's going to be okay. It's a deepening trust in Jesus Christ, in his righteousness and not your own, in his death and not your circumcision. It is a deepening trust that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that he meant it. And that everything that was necessary for your salvation, both in um, position before God, as seen as righteous, as well as practically in overcoming sin, and then finally in, in hope, in being completely removed from the presence of sin, all of that stems from our justification. All of that stems from Christ's work and not our own. And so if you're going to grow as a Christian, the seed of growth is always faith. That's always where it has to begin. If you bypass that step and go straight to the working, go straight to the love, go straight to these other things, you will always go astray. As I said earlier, if, if everything we have is available for us in Christ Jesus, it's only accessible by growing in your knowledge, your understanding, and your trust of Him. Okay? But if faith is the root, love is the fruit. Okay? When it's true faith and it truly entrusts ourselves to Jesus and trusts Jesus on behalf of ourselves, it will manifest in love. It will bear the fruit of love. That, of course, is what we just read in the, uh, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Okay? And so again, we can say with confidence, if you are not growing in love, you're not growing as a Christian. Now that can feel really convicting because it is easy to see the places where we fall short in our life to love rightly God himself, who we're called to love with all our heart and our soul and our mind and strength, and, as, and to love our neighbors as well as we love ourselves. It's easy to see the lack here and the danger, again, is that we would bang our head against the wall and try harder in our own selves, pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps and try and make the fruit of love. And you can't. You cannot do it on your own. At best, what you will do is take plastic fruit and tape it to the tree. You may be able to convince people that you are loving. You may look like a fruitful tree. But the only way to make fruit, Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, is to abide in him. He is the vine and we are the branches. If we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. The root of faith, entrusting what ourselves to what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf, leads to the fruit of love and it does it in John's language as we abide. It does it in Paul's language through faith, okay? And so the way to grow then 
is not to go away from Christ and his crucifixion. It's not to move beyond faith. It's not something in addition to the Spirit. And it's not something that's more important than love. It is faith in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, developing a deeper love for God, for neighbor, for the church, etc. This is the way that it works. And so um, I just want to show you two places where we see all of these things kind of together. Just to show you that I'm not just building this case in Galatians, but this is the constant witness of the New Testament. Look in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul here is praying for the church in Ephesus, and I want you to notice what he says. He prays this in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Okay? The riches of Jesus Christ, that's where he begins. Strengthened and powered with the Spirit, that's where he goes next. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, how? Through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love. Again, if you're not growing in Christ, if you're not growing in faith, if you're not growing in the Spirit, if you're not growing in love, you are not growing as a Christian. Let me show you one more place. This one in the book of Titus. Listen to Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 and I want you to notice how far it reaches back how full it is in its expression of our salvation, and how it reaches forward into the lives that we live. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ. The grace of God has revealed, appeared, bringing salvation in what Jesus has done. We are waiting for the blessed hope of when Jesus will return and finish what he started. He also, though, redeems us, not just from judgment, not just from consequence, but redeems us from all lawlessness. And his goal, what he's doing right now, is to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay. The salvation that God brings in Jesus Christ is total. And although it will not be fulfilled in this time, it is being accomplished bit by bit, moment by moment in this time. As Paul puts it in Corinthians, the more we behold the glory of the face of Jesus Christ, the more we are changed from glory unto glory. All of this to say that the danger for the Galatian church is that they think Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and the Spirit are the ABCs of salvation. It's the beginning, the building blocks. But now they're mature Christians, so they need to move on to other things. 
And Paul says here and in Titus and in Ephesians, no, it's the A to Z. It is all there is. It is enough education. It is a big enough curriculum. It is full enough and complete enough to spend the rest of your life in and never exhaust the fruit that it can bring. And it's also the only way that brings that fruit and that life. Now that brings us to verse 7. And again, I just want to honor the way that Paul says this and not spend a lot of time here. I just want you to hear how robust and multifaceted his argument is. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He says, you're like, a, I mean, I know he wasn't talking about a car engine here, but I think that's a more accessible metaphor because I, I mean, you've seen me, I'm not a runner. I don't know what running well looks like, but I do know when my car is working well. And basically he says, you're growing, you're doing it. You're maturing in Jesus Christ. Why are you thinking that you need something else? You have everything you need. And then he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now that's striking, right? Here these uh, Judaizers come in and say, you must obey the law. And he says, if you follow them, you disobey the truth you already know, that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. Look at verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. He says, you're listening to two voices. One is the one who called you into salvation. One is the one who said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. One is the one who said, I have done everything that you need. Enter into the salvation at my behalf. And then there's another voice who's saying, no, come and follow me instead. Come and walk this path uh, instead. But he says it's not closer walk with Jesus but to walk away from him. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What's the big deal? It's just circumcision. What's the big deal? It's just a cultural practice. Like any other cultural practice, can't it be of service to my salvation? And remember, Paul has no problem with circumcision. Circumcised, uncircumcised, it doesn't matter. But if you make it necessary, that's different. That belief system he says, it's just like the leaven we put in a little bread and suddenly it's all grown up. You can't keep it contained. It spreads and explodes. And I will tell you this, that the people who forsake the simple gospel of Jesus Christ for all of these other deeper teachings, they will never be satisfied because they will find that they don't work. And so they will cultivate a hypocrisy and pretend that they are mature while they are corrupt on the inside. They will continue to search and long for deeper in. Like a Scientologist, they will spend all of their money trying to find true Christianity. But they can't find their home because they left it the day they set out on the journey. And they only have one. They can't find their Savior because they turned away from him in their first step. In verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. This is amazing. Paul realizes the danger here, but also recognizes they too have the Spirit. The Spirit who will guide them into all truth. He says, I know you're going to make the right decision because I know your salvation is real. Now that doesn't stop him from laying out the warnings, but he basically says, live up to what I know is true. He really tries to push them here to live up to what he knows is true. But he also speaks of the severe penalty of false teachers. He says here, that man will get what he deserves, and it's worth remembering that here he's drawing this idea from Jesus himself. It's Jesus who said, if anyone comes and leads one of these little children astray, it'd be better for him to hang a millstone 
a one-ton stone around his neck and be cast into the sea. Okay, these are very serious things. Then notice verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross had been removed. In some way here, Paul says, look, I know one of their cases they're making is that I also believe in circumcision. He says, look, I am covered in the bruises of rocks because Jews have run me out of town and stoned me. He says, look, I have experienced the full persecution of the cross of Christ. And it's about this issue that Jesus saves apart from the law of Moses. And so he says, don't believe the press. I was a Judaizer. I was just like them. And I needed and found salvation in Jesus Christ just like you have. And then notice verse 12. I wish, wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, that's intense language, and it's pretty gross. Basically, he says, look, they're so focused on circumcision, I wish they'd just castrate themselves. If a little bit of skin makes a difference, why not cut off your whole penis? This is what he's saying, but he's saying more than that. If you go back to the law of Deuteronomy, anyone who castrates themselves is excluded from the people of God. And see, that was the whole deal here. They were saying the mark of a real Christian is circumcision. And he says, in this case, it's evidence that you belong outside the assembly of God's people. He says, I wish you'd just go the whole way and show yourself to be what you really are, not part of God's people at all. Now, my final question for you is, why, why is Paul all over the place here? Paul is so eloquent. Think of 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become like a clanging cymbal or a resounding gong. Where is that in this sentence? As he just rambles and mixes metaphors and moves all over the place. What is this? It's passion. It's passion that blurs his ability to be slow because he sees this as so significant. And I just want to close this morning by following suit. I want to remind you of what Paul says in the beginning of Galatians. If anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to this one, that Christ died for sinners of who I am chief, contrary to this one, that Jesus paid it all on the cross and makes available to you his spirit so you can grow in righteousness and one day he will return and finish what he started. If they bring another gospel or you know a 102 class of Christianity and call for you to leave behind the simple things of 101, let that man be accursed. Reject that gospel for what it is. No good news at all. The reason Christ came was because we were insufficient to save ourselves. And the good news is that God knew that. And he loved us in spite of that. And he made a way where there is no way because with God all things are possible. And there is a deeper freedom for you. The things that you struggle with, the things that you wrestle with, the trauma that you're trying to work through, the pain that you endure, the fraying of your relationships and your families and friends, there really is a way for those things to be changed, transformed, renewed, restored, for you to experience the shalom, the peace that God offers. It's all there and there's only one road. Faith in Christ empowered in the Spirit, working through love.
Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Either that's true in its totality, or it is untrue. Either it is sufficient, or it is insufficient. And let me tell you with the confidence of experience in following Jesus and the full weight of God's revelation in the scriptures, it is true. Completely and totally true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the freedom that you've given us in Christ. And we know, Lord, that we are always in danger of stepping back into slavery of following another master or listening to another Lord. But I pray, God, that we would be so devoted to growing in Christ, we wouldn't have time for alternates. We wouldn't be distracted by other ways of being. Let us taste and see that the Lord is good so that all of the idols of this world pale in comparison. Let us be so satisfied in you, Lord, let us be so comfortable putting all of our longings and all of our hope in what you will do and not what we can do. And let us continue to sow in the Spirit and to taste the first fruits of your salvation and faithfully follow you. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.